to get up and do my thing. I want to get into it, man, you know. Like, I, you know I'm the man, don't you? Can I count it off? One, two, three, four. You're listening to the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibbony, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a Christian worldview. Transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square. This is the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibbony, hosted by the Ann Campaign, brought to you by Fourth District. Happy Thanksgiving week, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving week to you, Justin. Right back at you, man. I know we're both ready to, to eat some good food. Might have to. I know I've been anticipating it by kind of working out a little extra doing doing two a days because I know I'll probably overindulge. Uh, but I'll try to do my best uh, to, to not go too far. How about yourself? <laughs> well, <laughs> I should. You think if I start that tomorrow, you think that'll that'll cover it? <laughs> it couldn't help. It couldn't hurt. Though, right. It couldn't That's hurt. Right. You got to start somewhere. And hey, you never know. Every calorie burned counts, brother. Hey man, that's that's encouraging. <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. I'm, you know, I got in laws coming. You know, my wife is like thirty eight. Melissa is thirty eight, thirty nine weeks pregnant, and so, uh, and so, you know, if she she can go uh, anytime. Uh, she can go on Wednesday. She can go on Thursday after the meal is done. But w- once I get a couple hours into cooking. Everything has to be on lock. I mean, so you I, are I just, cooking. Are you doing the majority of the cooking? Oh, I'm doing it all, brother. I'm oh, wow. See, this is this this brings up good an interesting subject. So I got left off of of all cooking duties, and you know I took offense to it. I thought there it, within the family there might have been some sexism involved with that. <laughs> but my mom gets an email. I mean, gets a uh, text from my wife that left me off the list, and so I don't know what to make of that. Maybe wow. and camp folks out there can help me, man. But yeah, man, that's just. Yeah, that, that's cold. Yeah, that's cold. <laughs> that's <buddy>. cold. <laughs> you you should just you know you should bring something anyways and just blow them all out of water. I was thinking about <laughs> doing know? that. I was yeah, thinking yeah, about yeah. making something uh, and not even telling them I did it. You know. Yeah, or you know you could make something and you know you just eat it yourself. Don't let any <laughs> you know if they if they didn't want your cooking, that's, that's right. on them. <laughs> they don't know what they're missing. That's right. Uh, <laughs> well, you know it's going to be a wonderful week uh, and. You know, hope everyone has a wonderful time with family and friends uh, and, you know, talk about politics as you will. But, uh, you know, we're going to talk about politics in this episode. Maybe we'll get allow you to get some of it out of your system so that you could uh, b- be civil with with family uh, and, and not not let uh, politics t- tear apart your Thanksgiving. Although sometimes issues need to be discussed. So, you know, do that. It might be a better time for it. But, yeah, perhaps. perhaps. <laughs> All right. Well, we have uh, speaking of family squabbles and. uh I, I wasn't even thinking of that transition, but it's a good one. Uh, speaking of family squabbles, uh, Speaker Pelosi is in uh, a bit of a fight, Justin, uh, today uh, 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 over a dozen House Democrats put out uh, a letter uh, suggesting that they would not vote for Speaker Pelosi. Uh, there's the uh, there's the Problem Solvers Caucus that has uh, said they will only vote for a speaker who agrees to certain structural changes in the House. Uh, there's 
uh, been some friction with more uh, progressive members of the House Democratic Caucus uh, uh, around climate change. Uh, uh, Cortez, Ocasio-Cortez, actually on our first date mm-hmm. in D.C., actually showed up at a protest in Speaker Pelosi's office around uh, building a, a green economy. Uh, and so uh, Speaker Pelosi has has her hands full and uh, there, there's a, a bit of a drive to, I think, at least pressure her into making some concessions uh, as far as how she'll run the House and what Democratic leadership will look like. Uh, ahead of this, ahead of this vote, J- Justin, do you think there there's any chance that Nancy Pelosi is not Speaker of the House in January? I think chances are slim. If there's anybody that can get through this, it's her. Um, you know, I, I want to be completely transparent. I'm not a huge Nancy Pelosi fan. However, uh, be not mistaken, uh, she is a brilliant and highly skilled operative. She is a strong strategist and she had, is very resourceful. She also raises money like no one else. And within these kind of uh, skirmishes, that goes a long way. So I, I think at the end of the day, she'll be in there. But uh, as you said, there are 19, there's 16 people who signed a letter uh, promising to oppose her. There are 19 in total. That's only 6% of the Democratic caucus, but it is enough to stop her if nothing changes. So we'll see if she can sway some of those people. Uh, but Nancy Pelosi is not going to be an easy person to, to, to take out, so to speak. Uh, she has been the leader of the party for a, a, a minute. Uh, she got into office, I think, in 1987. She became speaker in 2007. Uh, she'll be 79 in March. And so some people are saying it's an age thing. Other people are saying it's sexism, which is tough because the person talking about running against her is also a, a woman. But we'll just have to see. We'll see what happens. One thing we do know is that Nancy Pelosi, despite all of her skills, is a very divisive character within the House. Uh, last time I looked, she was actually the most disliked politician in America. That is under Mitch McConnell. And that is also under President Trump. Uh, so believe it or not, she is pretty unpopular. And, and that's something that many people are thinking about. As I mentioned before, Marsha Fudge, Representative Marsha, Marsha Fudge, has been named as one of the people who was interested in running against her. According to Politico, um, Marsha Fudge said that she might consider changing her mind about running against Pelosi if Pelosi agrees not to run again after this term. She also went on to say that she would like to know more about Pelosi's plans for retirement. Ouch. Uh, So that's some tough talk right there. Marsha Fudge doesn't seem to be afraid of Nancy Pelosi, but you better believe that a lot of people are. At the end of the day, I think Nancy gets through it. It may be very close. We'll just have to see. Um, And it shows there are some divides in the party. But I think the number one thing going for the party right now is Trump. Trump is doing a great job of holding the Democratic coalition together. Uh, But there are some very serious disagreements being hidden under the resistance to Trump. And but for Trump, we would see those pop out a lot more than they are now. And we might not see them completely now because of Trump. Um, And specifically, when you're talking about economics, and that's one of the things that uh, Ocasio-Cortez went into the office to talk about economics between establishment Democrats like Pelosi and Democrat socialists like Bernie Sanders and others is a big deal. And 
I almost think I said this before. It's almost an irreconcilable difference. These folks just think about economics differently. There are a couple of people who are trying to play both sides. You'll see that in some of the folks running in 2020. But at the end of the day, they're really you really can't play both sides on, on this one. There are some very distinct differences in how they see the economy. What are your thoughts on this division? Yeah, I, I think it's real. I, I think that it's another way in which the sort of uh, enthusiasm, you know, the pitting of enthusiasm and mobilization versus pragmatism and persuasion plays out. I'm not sure that I, I think in many cases that that argument is 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 not right, that there's not a stark divide between sort of moderation and mobilization uh uh as as folks suggest uh as folks suggest there is but it's gonna be uh i'm i'm interested to see uh, what kind of legislation moves forward in this congress now you could say that the fact that uh, they have a republican senate and trump and in in the White House will lead the House to uh, put forward, you know, more middle of the road packages. But I actually think there's a high likelihood of the House being more aggressive, forcing the Senate and Trump to shoot down ideas as a way to suggest that the, uh, Democrats need more power in 2020. But but that could come back and bite them. But I, I think this divide is real. I do think Nancy Pelosi uh is well positioned and well equipped to uh, to hold the caucus together. Uh, this is the, the the woman who was responsible for uh, passing the Affordable Care Act. This is uh, one of the party's leading strategists, and uh, I, I do think that there is some level of sincerity in her claim that this is not the time for. And of of those who support her, that this is not the time, given the stakes, to like lose her institutional knowledge. But let and me the fact ask you this. Let it. me ask yeah. you this: Why do we lose her institutional knowledge just because she's not the speaker? Right? If you care about the party, if you're still going to be in office, do you have to be the leader? Do you have to be the face to lend your resources, lend your wisdom in these cases? Why think, is it that yeah, you step sure, out sure. and you and, and, and we completely lose every now? Of course, if you disagree with someone, they're not going to use you the way that you would use yourself, right? right? But but That's but right. at the end of the day, is isn't that a recipe? Isn't that whole argument that it's not the time she's been there the longest? She's no she knows what she's doing. It sounds like me to as a it sounds like to me it's just a recipe to maintain the status quo under that logic, which a lot of people are giving. Nothing ever changes under under that logic. Um, and she's taken some major losses, too. So she has she's had some big wins. She's taken some major losses. Why can't you assist in younger leadership? Because I think that does matter. The face of the party matters. Can you assist in that younger leadership? Other concerns are, I mean, she she it's hard for her to speak to middle America. She lives in a district where a lot of poor people and middle class folks can't even live anywhere close to that. Those things play a role. And just some of the things that those are just some of the things I think we need to think through. But I don't think the party should lose it, all the benefits of her being there just because she's not the leader. Although we know practically that's pretty much what happens. Right. Yeah. yeah. And it's, so that's our, I mean, she is she is leveraging everything at her disposal 
to maintain power. I mean, and that's what that's what it is. Do, do I think that there would be people certainly politically positioned, uh, uh, better politically positioned to lead the party in this moment? Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I would think about someone like Cedric Richmond. I would think about um, someone like Sherry Bustos. Uh, uh, you know, I, I think that there's a there's a significant list of folks who would be interested. You know, honestly, you know, I, I'd look at someone like I think Connor Lamb should be in leadership, even even though he's he's young. I, I mean, and that takes me to uh, Justin. It's been uh, so so interesting to hear claims of ageism come out of, of a, a party and of pundits who have been prosecuting a pretty blatantly ageist <laughs> campaign against Republicans. I mean, we just got through a campaign in which Democrats ran an ad, which was basically a whole bunch of old people <laughs> and senior citizens uh, uh, stereotypically uh, saying how they were voting against the interests of young people with the message uh, that if you, if, if you don't want these old people to be making decisions for you, you better turn out and vote. And now all of a sudden, cause Nancy Pelosi's in a bind folks are <laughs> sensitive to ageism. And that's, and that's one of the problems with the party in general is this, this identity manipulation. Right. So when in a certain situation, we care so much about being inclusive and, you know, this is the this is the narrative of the Democrats. We care so much about being inclusive and diversity, uh, which may not all be false. However, we will use it whenever we can to our advantage. So we can use ageism. We can say sexism, even though she's she would be running against another uh, a woman candidate. And it's just like, come on, guys, if you're serious about this, don't just use it and cry wolf, because people remember that the next time when it is real, people may not react in the way that you want them to. So, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of intellectual dishonesty going there. And again, this is identity manipulation. Identity matters. But when you use it in this way, you actually undermine uh, the places where you need it. Yeah. And, you know, it's going to be interesting. What I'm interested to see is if now Steny Hoyer actually has pretty significant support. So for folks, so Steny Hoyer is the number two Democrat in the House, uh, but he is uh, seen and has a history as more of a centrist Democrat. And so uh, typically sort of the 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 way that it, it it's worked in democratic leadership in the house is the balance there and they're both uh, yeah. i believe they're both in their 70s so there's no balance in terms of age uh there's no racial balance there but the 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 um the, the deal that was made was steady steady being in leadership basically holds in more moderate Democrats. Uh, and so, but what's going to be interesting is, you know, Democrats are moving into January with the current plan being uh, to have Nancy Pelosi, Steny Hoyer, and and Jim Clyburn from South Carolina as its leadership, which, again, doesn't, doesn't necessarily present a, a fresh face for, you know, new and tumultuous times uh, that I, I think a lot of people in the party would like to present. So I'm interested to see if if Steny ends up being collateral damage, although, again, he has a lot of support in the House and he's been wanting to be speaker for a long time. And then obviously I think it would be 
it, there would be major significant problems if if somehow they tried to weaken Clyburn's position uh, in the House. But it's it's going to be interesting to see how this leadership battle shakes out. I, you know, I think Democrats the, the pro, for Democratic strategists, I, I think their main priority is and is to uh, make sure as much of this happens quietly and before January as possible. The last thing Democrats need is internal dissension as they try and rev up, uh, you know, making really a two year case against Trump and then, you know, hopefully, you know, do, passing some successful legislation as well. And there could be consequences for some of these folks who just got in, right? A lot of these folks who just got in on the Democratic side ran on not voting for Pelosi. That's right. So can they move, right? Is that even an option for them to move? They're back up for re-election in, in, in two years. Uh, so people aren't going to forget that uh, very soon. So that's something to look out for. Also, if I'm not mistaken, wasn't there a vote of no confidence against uh, Perez for the DNC? I think what didn't that, I think that might have come from the uh, Congressional Black Caucus or something like that. But Perez is, is his position is up in the air as well. Yeah, I mean, he's been he's certainly been under fire. And so, you know, it'll be interesting to see, uh, you know, the the. What I do, what I do think is there is going to be, you know, identity is going to come into this. There, there's going to be. I want to be surprised to see new create, new positions created. Like there's going to be some attempt to 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 uh, to square the circle here. Um, but uh, the question is whether the Democratic base is in a position where they're willing to be. Uh, mollified in such a way, uh, and and that that's going to be something that's uh, that we'll have to watch for. Yep. Uh, uh, all right. Well, uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we're going to discuss the first step act, which we've discussed on this show before. But uh, there's been some interesting uh, progress on that as of late. This is the Church Politics Podcast. All right, we're back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. And Justin, we talked on this show quite a bit already about the First Step Act, which is uh, significant criminal justice reform legislation, uh, bipartisan legislation, uh, a pretty interesting story here uh, about the support it's received. And that has picked up over the last week. We saw uh, President Trump endorsed the legislation. We saw Senator Cory Booker announced that he would back the legislation. Uh, Cory Booker has, has been a longtime advocate, author of criminal justice legislation of his own. Uh, and uh, Van Jones took some heat for saying that we needed to give credit where credit was due, uh, uh, referring to President Trump. Uh, and so it's an interesting... Uh, interesting dynamic. Now, in in the Senate, uh, Senator Tom Cotton, who uh, is is, uh, I'll just say he's one of the worst senators uh, 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 in, in the Senate. He, he's he's just not a nice guy, uh, uh, and he also takes some really bad positions. But a lot, it seems like a lot of his colleagues don't don't really like him too much. Senator Rand Paul actually tweeted today directly confronting Tom Cotton, uh, saying that if he had problems with the bill, 
uh, he should want it to be debated openly instead of preventing the bill from even coming to the floor. And same for Mitch McConnell. Uh, uh, Senator Rand Paul and others have expressed um, the idea that if it was allowed a floor vote, uh, it would receive 65 to 70 votes in the Senate. Uh, Justin, we've talked about this bill before. It doesn't do everything. It's not uh, remaking our criminal justice system, but it does do some, uh, it does take some important steps. It will finally ban the shackling of women during childbirth. It will place, uh, it it will uh, make sure that uh, it will help facilitate uh, incarcerated folks uh, being more connected to their families and their families being more connected to them. It will allow formerly incarcerated people to serve uh, as volunteers and mentors. It will uh, authorize $250 million for a development and expansion of uh, recidivism programs. Uh, so so there, are some, there are some important pieces of this legislation that begin, you know, it says in the, in the act, it's the first step act, but it's a first step at tackling uh, what so many have seen to be a criminal justice system in desperate need of reform. And so, uh, Justin, really two questions for you. One, how do you feel about this legislation moving forward uh, from, a, from a policy perspective? Is this something that you think the country should get done? And then second, um, what do you think about both the interesting sort of uh, bipartisan support for the bill but then at the same time, these interesting sort of partisan uh, 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 squabbles that are, you know, sort of have a different makeup than many of the partisan fights that we we generally see. Yeah. So first of all, it should be passed. This is the criminal justice is important and it's something that needs to happen as soon as possible. One of the things that we need to understand about this bill, as you pointed out, brother, brother, Ware, is that it's not comprehensive. It's exactly what it, what the title says it is. It's a first step, but a first step that needs to be taken. So I, I want to start there. Something else to understand is that most people who are incarcerated are incarcerated in state prisons. That's 1.5 million people in state prisons. This only deals with federal prisons. So you need to make sure that you're also putting pressure on your state uh, government to, to make some changes there. They will actually have the biggest impact around uh, the 50 states. Um you know, it gives hope. This this bill just generally gives hope that bipartisanship isn't dead. Um, it shows us that both sides, that there are people on both sides who realize that criminal justice is important and that our system needs improvement. And I want to I want to start. I want to give a shout out to a group who is often criticized, even by myself. I'm in that the number of people who criticize this group is Trump evangelicals who actually have been pushing for this criminal justice uh, reform for quite some time. And they've been pretty persistent about it. Now, we may disagree on a lot of things, but you got to give credit where credit is due. I'm glad that President Trump uh, voiced his support for this. That is important. And what people who don't want to give credit, I want to talk about Van Jones because he gave the president some credit on this. The only thing you do by not giving people credit for when they've earned it, uh, even if you don't like them, is lose credibility. Yeah. Uh, and so every time that you criticize them, nobody's really listening to you because all you do is criticize. And I think all of us need to watch out for that. If you don't if you don't agree with somebody, don't just agree with them for no reason. But if they do something that's helpful, even if you agree with 
99% of the other things they've done, you might want to say, hey, I, I appreciate that. And it'll tell other people, oh, this person is objective and can look at things without being completely emotional and not admitting when somebody else has done well. So I'm glad to see that Van Jones did that. And I've seen others do that as well. Yeah. Just I, for a little. Yeah, oh, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say I completely agree. But uh, but but yeah, yeah. Carry on. Yeah, just for a little background, this came out of the House in May uh, as 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 Bill uh, 5682. Um, the first uh, the first step act is actually an acronym and the acronym is formally incarcerated, re reenter society, transform safely, transitioning every person act. <laughs> so <laughs> so they really wanted to get that first step back and just whatever, <laughs> whatever words fit with that, they just kind of put it in there. But it did pass the House in May, so it's been sitting for a little while. Um, and, and, and I think we need to really look at what it does. Michael did a very good job naming most of the stuff. It reduces mandatory, mandatory minimums for nonviolent drug offenders who are about half the federal pr- prison population, about 200,000 about over 200,000 people a year could have their sentences reduced uh, because of this. And you may say, well, in the large scope, that's not very big, but that that's potentially 2000 families a year. To me, that matters. And so we, we can't always look for the, the home run. Sometimes we have to take what we can get. It'll reduce spending by about seven hundred and twenty nine million dollars. Not huge, but it is something it can go to other places, especially when we're running a deficit the way that we are. We might need every penny that we can get. And it opens the door and funds rehabilitation and job training programs for people who get out and who are who are trying to do better. As Christians, uh, we believe in redemption. We don't give up on people. Uh, this doesn't mean that we let pe- we, that people don't face consequences for what they've done. But we do have to have a, a level of mercy. And when people have served their time and, you know, and they, uh, you know, and they have done what they've been asked to do and had good behavior, we should look for opportunities to give people second chances. Um, I, you know, I don't know what to say. Former Attorney General Jeff Sessions, you know, wasn't a fan of this. Here we see now Tom Cotton, as you mentioned earlier, is now trying to to stop this bill. I mean, just to put it plainly, he's u- using one of the oldest tricks in the book, which is when you want to stop something, you don't necessarily have to say, no, this shouldn't pass. The first thing people usually say, and I've been around legislation for a while, is we haven't had time to look at this. Yeah, right. We need more time. We need more time to look at this as if this hasn't been an issue for the longest and as if it hadn't been passed in May. Right. So, Tom Cotton, if you if you're on your job. You had plenty of time to review what what is in this. Not only did he use the oldest trick in the book for delaying and putting uh, legislation aside. Now he's actually falsifying information and saying that it lets people out who who have assaulted police and all this other stuff that it just lets people out uh, of jail for no reason. And all this other stuff It's like, come on. And, and I'm glad to see people like uh, the Senator Mike Lee from Utah saying, no, you're, you're just wrong. Yep. And it sounds like you need to read the bill. It is good that people within his own party are saying this is ridiculous. Tom Cotton, I guess he wants to be the law and order guy, which means that criminal justice, it's all about the harshness of it. It's all about penalizing and the punitive side of it. And I just think that's unfortunate. I don't think that's thoughtful politics. And if you want to keep a narrative or you want to keep some type of ideological purity when you have people involved, again, we have to put skin on on policy. This is about people. So when there are people involved, you need to be you need to be more thoughtful about what, what you're what you're going through. If you have some real problems with it, and this is what Mike Lee said, he said, if you have real problems with the with the First Step Act, 
Let me know what those issues are and let's debate it on the floor. It needs to come up to a vote because the issue right now is, will this get passed before the end of the year? If it doesn't get passed before the end of the year, then it has to go all the way back through the House. And who knows what problems could come up with that? So I'm hoping that Mitch McConnell, who is the the, uh, Senate Majority Leader, puts this on the floor for a vote this year so we can get passed and we can get to the second step. But it's very clear that folks like Tom Cotton, unfortunately, want to see it stopped. And that's that's just unfortunate. Well, uh, let's take another quick break. When we get back, uh, we're going to talk about Jim Acosta and what happened with that saga last week. Uh, this is the Church Politics Podcast. All right, we're back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. And, you know, Justin, uh, we, we had, you know, another episode of, you know, Trump White House drama last week that, you know, like a good episode of, of television, uh, started and concluded within, you know, pretty quick time frame. Uh, I guess the, the background here is uh, President Trump held a press conference during which Jim Acosta uh, 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 asked a question, did repeated follow-ups, was, was you know, pr- pretty aggressive in his questioning and wouldn't seed the, seed the mic. Uh, an intern, for some reason, I've never been watching, been involved in presidential press conferences for a long time, never seen an intern be instructed to get involved with taking the mic from a national reporter, but uh, this intern was uh, sent over to try and take the mic from Jim Acosta and, uh, and he, he didn't let it go. Uh, we'll get back to that in a moment. Uh, and, you know, there was a, a, a verbal uh, president Trump sort of, sort of um, uh, uh, criticized him uh, pretty harshly from the mic. And then in subsequent interviews, the White House ended up uh, uh, taking away Jim Acosta's press pass, meaning that he wouldn't have access to, to the White House to do his job. Uh, as a part of justifying this, they released uh, doctored, sped up footage that they suggested show Jim Acosta getting uh, uh, physical with the with the female intern that uh, tried to take the mic and then backed off of that after CNN filed a lawsuit. <laughs> uh, CNN filed a lawsuit on the first on First Amendment grounds that uh, that uh, Jim Acosta didn't have due process and his press pass was uh, removed. Uh, uh, for for uh, trivial unjust reasons, that court case was also resolved last week. So Jim Acosta has his press pass back. Adjusted. Uh, um, I feel like Trump got uh, once again. This is one of those things that that Trump got quite a bit out of. Uh, C- CNN, you know, was. Filed a lawsuit and then was reporting on its own lawsuit, which was just kind of, you know, uh, a weird look. Uh, I mean, I, I think I, I just to be clear, I think they they were justified in doing so. Clearly, the judge thought so as well. Um, but the 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 optics of it really play play into 
President Trump's argument about the mainstream media when, when you have media organizations filing lawsuits in, in a public way. Uh, and I, I was actually, uh, I, I, I think there are a lot of folks, and I actually overheard a, a, a pretty senior journalist uh, uh, in town here in D.C. Uh, say, I think a lot of people quiet, you know, quietly won't say it out loud, but think that Jim Acosta's questioning was over the line that that he actually was was being disruptive. Uh, whether or not that justifies the press passes, um, but but clearly he he had something he was trying to get out of that experience as well. And so, uh, just it, uh, I, I'm I'm looking at this. You know, there there's been all kinds of conversation now about you know just another mark of. of uh, this administration harming freedom of the press and uh, what a constitutional threat this organization is and uh, uh, this this administration is. I, I saw this as a as a as a scuffle between that has really descended between a president who doesn't know anything about the Constitution, a White House that is willing to wage war against press operations. And a media environment that thrives off of all of it. Yeah, that's right. So, so the biggest culprit here, and you hit, you hit it on the head, is the administration. Um, this is this was just unneeded. Uh, it could have been handled a lot differently. When you look at the videotape that they put out and sped up, and how they set it up for her to grab the mic from him, and all that other stuff, it's just a whole lot of theater. <laughs> um, and I will say, to some extent, Acosta played into that theater. Uh, because you're not supposed to go in there and be adversarial, right? You're asking questions, you're trying to get the right answers, but you're not trying to engage in an argument with the administration necessarily, right? You can be tough and all that stuff. He probably stepped over the line, but the administration knew to try to take his press pass away from him was a bit much. And so we see this theater, we have this lawsuit, um, good it was filed. The judge took care of it very quickly, which I'm glad that they got this theater out of out of the news as quickly as possible. Uh, you saw Fox News even jumped on and filed an amicus brief. For those who don't know, an amicus brief means uh, a friend of the court. And so really when you're not a party to a suit, but you have an opinion and you have an interest in it uh, kind of indirectly. Sometimes you send a brief to the court to tell them what you think. It happens all the time. So it, it was a lot of back and forth. I'm glad he got his press pass back. I just want everybody to, 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 to work a little more constructively because here's the other side. Never in this instance will I defend the Trump administration for what they did. They knew they were out of line and they were just, this was unprecedented, right? They were kind of trying um, to try the limits yeah. to all this. Yeah, right, 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 right. They're trying to the limits all this. But the other thing is this, and I and I just have to I have to be honest for a quick second and admit that it's not funny, but it, it makes me it makes me giggle a little bit. When progressives act like they're so upset when Trump attacks them, it's kind of funny. Because at the end of the day, we all know that that's the best thing that could happen to you, right? If you're if you're a Democrat or a progressive activist or somebody who's progressive or lean to the left. One of the best things that can happen to you from a PR standpoint, from a professional standpoint, from a social media likes and follow standpoint is to have the president attack you because you automatically become a darling. Um, And so people know that people, you know, people are starting to provoke the president in that regard. And it's his fault that he reacts to it. So uh, he only has himself to blame for it. But it's just funny to me when you get these woe is me. I can't believe this. This is so terrible. 
knowing in the back of your head that like with your base, that's actually the best thing that can happen. It's always just, it's been funny for me to see that as of like, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's just, uh, it, it, again, we talk, we talk so much about how surreal our politics has become, uh, that there's this sort of layer of frivolity, um, but all enmeshed in that are, you know, court hearings and judges having to rule on this and lawsuits being filed and the Constitution being invoked. And it's just, uh, you know, I, I think it's at some level just an irresolvable and almost to an extent that I think the healthiest thing we could be is aware of the fact that this is not like not normal that and that it is surreal <laughs> like like that this is not all on the level like everyone has an agenda and right. one of the healthiest things that you could be is to have a, a level of uh 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 of uh a, a little injection of 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 lightness and ambivalence uh, about some of the overblown sort of sort of claims whether it's yeah and you watch, know and watch what you yeah and watch what you you know who you applaud right because politicians and others especially people in the public spotlight are kind of like little kids and once they get the attention for doing something they tend to try to do it over and over again so when people see that it gives them more followers and that people you know are for them and root them on every time they do the craziest thing or say the craziest thing they can to the opposite side, then they're going to continue doing it. And a lot of our politics, it was already like that, be not mistaken, but it's got even worse because you have these people that we just, we like to just applaud and uh, uh, support people who are provocative and people who are going at the other side, regardless of what they say. And so like children, they continue to do that, not even worried about the harm that they're doing to the system or institutions and all that stuff. So it's really on us. What are we rewarding? Stop rewarding somebody just because they went against the other side. That that is the wrong incentive. And at the end of the day, again, we can only blame ourselves for what the outcomes are. Yeah. And I mean, this is this is Michael Avenatti's entire you know, entire justification for existing, you know, like I, I, I was reading, I think it was Edward Isaac Dovier in the Atlantic. And, you know, people are having the, like, there are now serious Democrats who are like, well, well, uh, yeah, he's not a serious guy, but he may be the best to go up against Trump. And, and you know, someone who's not serious is not qualified to go up against Trump to, to be president of the United States. And we're seeing like this, this devolution into into optics and this devolution into um, just uh, just uh, just blunt uh, st- uh, sort of short term strategy when we need to remember that <laughs> that, that, that politics is about real people <laughs> and these jobs are not uh, these jobs the pu- public office is not a joke at the end of the day for all of the uh, antics that we see on TV, eighty percent of ninety percent of what's being done are concrete decisions that affect real people, uh, and I feel like we're we're losing that uh, a, a great deal. Um, I, I was uh, just I was in a I had the opportunity to attend a, a briefing on uh, on nuclear uh, 
nuclear proliferation and the use of nuclear weapons and uh, listen to uh, a former general talk through the process for uh, retaliatory uh, nuclear strikes. And uh, this this general was relating that our current system uh, basically allows for about a three-minute window uh, to launch a retaliatory nuclear strike from the moment that we uh, that we uh, that our our radar and our systems pick up a, a a strike against us. By the time that's conveyed down the uh, line of uh, the chain of command uh, and uh, uh, allowing for enough time for the strike to be launched. Uh, before attacks against our nuclear facilities could be made, uh, uh, that, that basically the president of the United States has three minutes to go through uh, his options uh, in order to make a decision. And it just brought home for me, um, you know, that's who we're electing when we, when we, when we elect a president, <laughs> uh, not, a, not someone who entertains us, uh, not someone who, uh, we feel gets uh, who we are and uh, sort of uh, our our preferences and all this. Like that's who we're electing, and our politics so often gets away from uh, from understanding that. That's right. All right, we're going to take one last break, uh, and when we get back, we're going to discuss uh, the future of the Republican Party. This is the Church Politics Podcast. All right, we're back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. Uh, and, and Justin, we wanted to close this episode by uh, talking about an article from uh, Rahan Salam. He's a uh, contributing editor at The Atlantic, executive editor, editor of National Review. Uh, he co-authored uh, a, a book called The Grand New Party with Ross Douthat uh, a decade ago in which they argued that the Republican Party was becoming and really had to become uh, uh, the party of, quote, the white working class. And that uh, and that in order to move forward successfully, uh, they had to, quote, craft a more populist economic agenda that that could secure the loyalty of working class voters of all colors and creeds uh, uh, just to continue uh, he said that in the book that uh, we warned that if the party's leadership failed to reflect the material interests and cultural sensibilities of its working class base, Republicans would find themselves doomed to defeat. Uh, he revisits the book in this article for The Atlantic uh, that ran on November 14th called The New GOP Coalition is Emerging. Uh, he extols uh, the politics of someone like Charlie Baker, who uh, was reelected in Maryland, a very blue state, uh, uh, with an argument that uh, Republicans need to be thinking about how to use government uh, in ways consistent with free market and conservative principles to, to help people that that no longer can the principal divide in our politics be between uh, folks, uh, sort of big government and small government or no government, but but that actually the world and the country has changed so that that's not sort of the principal division anymore. Uh, just so, what do you think about the, the article? What do you think 
the prospects are of the Republican Party uh, becoming a, a, a party of the working class generally, not just the white working class. Uh, uh, Salam argues in the piece that in some ways uh, Trump's uh, Trump's election validated uh, their appeal that the Republicans had to had to be more focused on the working class, white working class than than elites, but obviously falls short on uh, the working class more generally. But what 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 do you think about Salam's argument about the future of the Republican Party? It's a thought provoking argument. Um, and it's one, as you said before, he's been making for quite a while. And the Republican Party might be uh, better off if they listen to Salam. I'll be honest, Salam is one of my uh, favorite conservative commentators and writers. Uh, he's what was once called, once upon a time, was called a reform conservative or reformacon. And the reformacons wrote a very strong policy paper that kind of went along with that book. It, it was after the book, but it, it was on the same lines, along the same lines called Room to Grow, one of the better policy papers I've read in quite a while. Um, And again, it said that Republicans should focus on the working class. They should focus on families and jobs, kind of a populist feel to that, as as Michael was pointing out. Um, That movement really fizzled uh, once Trump came in. So there are couple people, maybe Rubio, a couple others who they thought could kind of carry that banner. But once Trump came along in 2016, it just kind of all fell apart. Um, and I know a lot of folks that I know, a lot of my Republican friends wish that the party would have listened to them because they had some really strong ideas. Um, and so what, what uh, Salam does here is he returns that message in his assessment of the midterms. And so based on the midterm, based on what we saw in the midterms, you have the socially liberal and fiscally conservative folks who went from Republican to Democrat in a very big way in this last cycle. Uh, this constituency is called in the in the article, and I think others have called them this Henry's. Henry's are high earners, not rich yet. So these Henry's are socially liberal, physically conservative, and it looks like they may have shifted to the Democratic Party. He thinks that may be a a long term shift. And so that's part of the basis of what he's saying here. And he basically tells the party, let them go and focus on the working class, because what it does is by letting the Henry's go, it opens up the Republican Republicans to uh, more populist policies. And you allow the Democrats to become the party of the elites and and go from there. So that's that's part of the argument that he that he makes. And here's one of his quotes on what the Republicans should do moving forward. Uh, Looking further out, though, Republicans will have no choice but to attract a far larger universe of working class voters to address the upper middle class exodus. Regardless of the outcome of the presidential election, younger members of the party need to start thinking about the post-Trump landscape and what it will take to expand the Republican coalition. The loss of Henry's could, in theory, free Republicans to pursue policies that might cut against the interest of affluent voters while serving the interest of other voters with more modest outcomes. Uh, And this is just he makes a a very I would read it because he goes in depth about what the policy would look like. So if, if you have a chance, take your time and read it. But. There, it's 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 a, I think it's a, a pretty strong argument. The one place that I think he underestimates is other people outside of the Henrys who are in the in the Republican Party establishment Republicans who still have that very conservative 
you know, fiscal standpoint. And so I don't know how much the the loss of the Henry's opens up the Republican Party to go against that constituency. I'm not sure if he factored that in quite enough, but we would have, you know, we would have to see. I'm the type of person that, you know, these Henry's are pretty much the opposite of where I'm at on a lot of issues. So I, I don't know if the Democratic Party, will, 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 you know, how much they'll benefit or not. And it goes back to what we said earlier, too, Michael. Now that we have this split in the Democrat Party, how do these Henry's coming into the party play in that? Do they strengthen the the establishment Democrats? And now the, the divide is even, you know, even worse. I don't know how that's going to I don't know what's going to become of that. But this article certainly starts to dig into that uh, dynamic. Yeah, just I mean, like you, I, I was really um, I was paying really close attention to the Reformacon movement, the reform conservatives and, w- and what they were doing. Uh, uh, you know, I followed the work of Brad Wilcox really closely who does a lot of stuff on family and was a part of the Reformacon uh, movement. You, you know, I, I just think, uh, you, you know, there's always the potential of a comeback, but they really had so many candidates that, that they were comfortable with in 2016 to the extent where they kind of felt like they had their pick of the litter. Um, and ultimately that came to bite them because there was never any consolidation around around any of them, they split up and they were left sort of feckless in the, in the face of Trump. And then I think the other thing they learn is that, um, that, that the, the sort of, uh, commitment to principle that they thought was so well developed among the Republican base really, really wasn't that, that, that actually the base Republican voter didn't care as much about, um, uh, some of the, some of the, uh, principles and ideas that that they thought were sort of at at, at their core. Uh, so uh, I do think that Salam is probably right in the long term. This is the path forward for a viable Republican Party. the 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 challenge is always with the Republican Party uh, is is how to move there when you have broad swaths of your base that are so resistant to to speaking in that way and you know i, I think this uh the, the the resistance uh and and the fact that the first step act even though uh you know just to bring it back to the first step act it's it's a really good example of you know this is something that you know would receive a, a super majority support that many Republican elected officials support it, but for some reason, and I think a lot of that reason comes with McConnell's concern with uh, sort of the Fox News crowd and concern about portions of the Republican base being sort of disenchanted about uh, this kind of reform uh, holding them back. And, and, uh, you know, I'm not sure that with Trump running for reelection that the Republican Party is going to have a time, have an opportunity for renewal until, you know, 2024 at least. Yeah, if then. So, and then I can, I can, you can almost feel the frustration of the reform economy. I know a lot of my friends who are in those circles are just really frustrated, have been. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad they're staying positive and hope floats. It's just going to be tough to, to get there, but you never know what can happen. Uh, he is right in that both parties need to think about what's going to happen post Trump. And it should be something that's as constructive as possible. And, and we'll see. You need thinkers like this and uh, to, to just keep the 
you know, keep the discourse going, keep people thinking um, nuanced, very good. And so I, I love pointing out these articles because they are thoughtful and, and very nuanced. Yeah. Yeah. Really appreciated that piece. And it was it was an article that we included in uh, today's essentials and uh, for the crux and the call uh, and, you know, for folks that uh, haven't checked it out or maybe you visited the site when it was launched, but haven't been back since. Uh, we have uh, just loads of new content. Uh, you'll be able to see our videos from uh, from our election-related events. You'll be able to read new content from Justin, new content from C.J. Rhodes uh, on Hamer Democrats, uh, and we have more fresh content that'll be coming out just over the next several days. And then every morning by 10 a.m., you can go to the crux in the call and just check out uh, today's essentials, which are sort of four to five essential reads for your day. And I thought it was interesting, Justin, uh, um, last week on Monday for today's essentials, we uh, we highlighted uh, Amazon's decision uh, to split its headquarters in you know, uh, New York and DC, which don't really need help, you know, attracting big business opportunities. Uh, and it ended up driving conversation. Uh, Amazon's decision ended up driving conversation to an extent that, uh, it even, even surprised me, even though, you know, we put it in today's essentials. So I think folks visiting that will be able to get a good read on, uh, what's going to be driving conversation, uh, so, uh, so would urge folks to check out the crux in the call. Uh, Justin, any any final any final words? We know that you won't be cooking anything, but uh, is there something you're you're looking forward to to eating uh, on Thanksgiving? You know, I'm always a turkey guy, but don't be so. You might have convinced me. I might revolt and actually cook cook something or sa- sabotage the whole thing since they didn't let me cook. You, you never know. I'll, I'll keep you posted when I get back. Uh, but but I want everybody to keep their eye on this uh, first step act. If uh, Tom Cotton and others try to derail it or it doesn't get passed this year, I think that'll be very unfortunate, and people need to hear about that. So make sure that you you know make your voice heard on this issue. Whether you want to call your representative, your senator, or whatever, people need to hear it. This needs to go forward. There's no reason for it not to go forward. It people have had a chance to look at it. Nobody's just walking out of jail. Um, and not serving their time. So take a look at the legislation. But if, if somebody stops this or it doesn't come to the floor, I, that's really unfortunate. And it's a loss for everybody. Yeah. All right, folks. Happy Thanksgiving. Uh, enjoy the holiday. And uh, uh, we'll be back to carry you through the end of the year and all of the political changes that are afoot. This is the church politics podcast. Thank you. Take care. In the favelas and slums together with habitants, it's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The only thing good came out of Nazareth. This is the groove. Tell me, can you I'm schooled in the ways of runaway slaves. I'm brave. I'm unchained. I'm Frederick Douglass with a fade.